Welcome to the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers, Faculty of British Columbia podcast. We are a diverse coalition of Asian Canadian legal professionals. We promote equity, justice, and opportunity for Asian Canadian legal professionals and the community. We foster advocacy, community involvement, legal scholarship, and professional development. The purpose of this podcast highlights the diverse and unique members of our community. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Hello and welcome to Faculty of BC's podcast. I'm Fiona. And I'm Sandy. And we are your co-hosts for today's episode. Our guest today is Myrna McCallum. Myrna is a Métis Cree mother and grandmother from Treaty 6 territory, and she's the host of the Trauma-Informed Lawyer podcast. Myrna McCallum specializes in trauma-informed lawyering and is seen as a leader in promoting this do-no-further-harm relational approach to the practice of law. She practices human rights law and is a former prosecutor and adjudicator. She lives and works in North Vancouver. We are very excited to have her on the podcast today. Welcome to our podcast, Marina. So happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for being our first guest. We're really excited to have you. So the very first question today is a trauma-informed perspective asks clients not what is wrong with you, but instead what happened to you. So we were wondering, can you give our listeners a brief introduction to trauma-informed lawyering and why it is so important not only to clients, but also to legal professionals? First off, I want to acknowledge uh, that question, that that approach to questioning, um, not um, what's wrong with you, but what has happened to you. That really has come from Gabor Mate um, and his uh, compassionate inquiry approach. And when I heard it, I was like, yes, this is exactly exactly the approach that we should have when we are talking to our clients as their advocates as somebody who you know needs to be like an allied partner in in, uh, achieving the outcomes that they are seeking and so yes I have to give a shout out to Gabor and um, also I have to give a shout out to survivors of sexual violence and Indigenous survivors in particular because they are the ones who really taught me trauma-informed layering to become a trauma-informed lawyer, why I need to understand trauma and particularly why I need to understand Indigenous trauma as a lawyer who uh, intended from before law school and throughout to work with Indigenous people. Like, honestly, I have no business sitting down with Indigenous clients without knowing exactly what Indigenous trauma is and how to interact with them in a way that does no further harm. So I have to, you know, put my hands up to Indigenous survivors for helping me become who I am today and all that I teach really on the podcast and elsewhere is really what they have taught me so um, so I have to just put that out there first and foremost and so you know trauma and trauma-informed lawyering is something I never learned in law school and as somebody who had a lot of trauma in my personal background from my childhood I grew up uh, in a very violent home um, lots of you know, lots of horrific stuff was my everyday reality. And as I, as I grew up, I was very angry, very shut down and very closed off. And when I went into law school, part of the reason I was so attracted to the practice of law was because it looked like how I felt shut down, combative, 
adversarial. I was like, yes, I'm in, I'm in. I love all of that stuff. Uh, that's how exactly how I want to be in the world. And I thought this is the perfect profession for me. And then throughout law school, I never heard about trauma. I never heard about trauma-informed lawyering. And then I got out into the practice of law and and I started to work with Indigenous people. And then that is when I began to learn about trauma. And I thought, wait a second, why didn't anyone tell me that this, you know, cutthroat, closed off, shut down, transactional approach that I was so keen to learn um, is actually how I do further harm to people who've already been significantly harmed. And it just it totally did not align with my values to continue to work in this way because it was reckless, it was negligent, it was harmful. And I definitely did not want to contribute to that experience, particularly for Indigenous people. And so out of that, I just, you know, uh, allowed like intuition, empathy, and the teachings of my great grandmother to really help me learn um, a different way a different approach, uh, do no further harm approach, which really um, called on me to have to learn empathy, have to learn uh, what it is to be relational, um, to learn patience, to sit comfortably in silence, to um, sit with someone as they were in the throes of rage or grief or anger um, or sadness or whatever it was, like all of these manifestations, like as trauma is being released, it's released in different ways. For some, it's silence. For some, it's pure rage and anger. For some, it's tears, right? And I had to just sit, like sit in that as uncomfortable as I was. Uh, and why do I share this particular piece? Because none of this came naturally to me. So people will like say, oh, well, you know, of course, you know, of course you can do this. Um, you know, you're this or you're that and whatever people think of me, um, they, they may have me wrong because I am very introverted. I am very uncomfortable with people. Um, and I'm definitely uncomfortable with the emotional expressions of others. It makes me want to run out the room. Um, and I am not always patient. And I really had to learn empathy because I was so disconnected from my own emotions that I lacked patience and I was very reactive. So, um, and I think that just comes like this. We know a lot of lawyers like that. And I think part of it is maybe, yeah, it's their character. But I think part of it when we see that is a coping mechanism, because maybe that's an indicator of their own trauma. And definitely that was the case for me. So, you know, in a nutshell, like that really is what trauma informed lawyering is, is um, really calling on you to learn all of these skills that you were never taught in, in law school about becoming uh, empathetic, becoming an active listener, embracing cultural humility, uh, particularly when you sit down with people who are different from you, come from a different lived experience or of a different race or cultural background, etc. cetera. Um, and all of it benefits, not just your client, but it benefits your colleagues, it benefits yourself. Why? Because one aspect of trauma-informed lawyering or trauma-informed legal practice is um, intended to safeguard your mental health against vicarious trauma. So picking up the traumas of others and allowing those things to affect you. Uh, it's easy to be affected by the traumas of others if we're so disconnected from ourselves and just lack total self-awareness. But if 
few uh, are acknowledging like maybe your own harms and your own risks and your own vulnerabilities and you're really in touch with yourself, you can then start to figure out a self-care plan as you go through the practice of law and how do you take care of yourself. And the more we take care of ourselves, the more our colleagues benefit, the more our families benefit, the more our clients benefit, and then it becomes really a culture shift. And so there's my answer and it's hard to do it like a brief like give you no, a brief it's definitely a very it's, it's a very big question and um and yeah just like I guess further to like your previous points it was interesting to hear you talk about your experience so far and the just the increasing need to be empathetic you know it's not just about being a trauma-informed lawyer but also to your friends and family right because outside of outside of being in the legal profession we are you know we have family we have friends and it's important to have that ability to listen to others and just be empathetic. So I think this is really relatable um, to experiences, not just within the legal profession. Thank you, Myrna. Thank you, Fiona, for sharing on that point. I think it ties in with our next topic. The issue of trauma and mental health can be unspoken subjects in Asian cultures. How can we start a trauma-informed dialogue around these tough topics? I mean, I, I know that there are folks who don't even want to recognize that trauma is even a relevant thing within our profession. Um, I know that there are folks that their lawyers, particularly senior ones who are of the view that you know, trauma-informed practice or, or trauma-informed approaches is a soft skill. That's something for, that's why we work with mental health professionals when we need them, like to bring them in on cases to prepare victims or witnesses or whatever, right? Um, but I am of the view that actually that is like an outdated, antiquated way of thinking. We actually need to be partnering with mental health professionals. We need to recognize them as partners who can not only support victims of crime, but support us as we are supporting victims of crime and advocating for victims of crime. So I really think, you know, that we need to think like in a more like broader, big picture, high, how do we build relationships with mental health professionals and, and bring them into our practice areas or bring them into our offices? I don't think it's enough for us to have um, like just the LAP, which I know does really good work, the Lawyers Assistance Program and EAP programs for employees. I don't think that that goes far enough because it really is just kind of offloading the responsibility to you to take care of your mental health, right? I think we need employers and uh, organizational leaders to actually say, we are recognizing that there's trauma in our profession and that the trauma can adversely affect you by way of vicarious trauma. And we want to support you and safeguard your mental health so that you stay with our firm for the long haul, that by the time you retire, you are not worse for wear, so to speak, that you are still as like whole and uh, well as you were the day you started. And this is how we're going to support you. We're going to have a mental health practitioner come in once a week for anyone who wants to just drop in with them to debrief or have a conversation. I think it's really something we all would benefit from as lawyers within this profession, because we all need to think about how are we going to take care of ourselves as we go through this work. And it's not just for lawyers who are working with victims of crime. It doesn't matter. You could be a corporate lawyer working really long hours under a tremendous amount of stress. Like, how do you take care of yourself so you don't show up at work the next day and 
and become like a complete jerk to your colleagues or to your support staff because you're stressed out, um, because you've got a lot on the line or you've got a really big deal that's kind of hanging in the balance. And so how do you take care of yourself and remain um, approachable and, um, you know, empathetic and relational and really pleasant to be around. And so I just think people need to, people within this profession really need to um, start to look within, which I know for some lawyers is a really scary place to look because we're so um, like focused on everything external in this profession and almost like um, um, supported in our um embrace of adversarial processes. But I think we have to look within to think about how conflict affects us and how we might carry that conflict. And then ultimately some of us, I think, um, as a way of dealing with trauma um, who are not really alive to the how they're being adversely affected become trauma seeking in all of our communications. Um, and we all know those lawyers, like, oh, we just dread having to email them or call them because it's always like, you know, just shooting like missiles your way. Um, and all you might be asking for is a pleading or some, oh, who knows what you're asking for, right? Something just completely, you know, non-triggering. Yeah, I just think we have to look within, we have to become honest with ourselves individually, collectively, and organizationally to think about how we uh, take care of each other and how we need to transform uh, the way we practice because, you know, the stats are not good for our folks within our profession. We have high suicide rates, we have high uh, addictions, alcoholism, drug addiction is like insanely high for our profession, lots of mental health issues, and no one's talking because everyone's terrified of stigma. And so, yeah, I mean, we have to start talking about trauma in these ways in terms of how it will benefit us. And for, you know, those of your listeners who think about, you know, um, money and billable hours, it's like the more in touch you are with yourself as a lawyer, that is going to um, translate into the connection you make with your clients. So if your client is really satisfied with their experience or they walk away feeling safe and empowered as a result of their communication with you, well, that's just gonna encourage them to keep coming back and to recommend their colleagues and their friends to come to your firm. And so that's how that can impact your bottom line. And so, like the benefits are endless and I see no downside. Mm -hmm. That definitely answers the questions, especially the point about acknowledging those emotions and how to deal with those emotions. I think that also really relates to the topic of vicarious trauma. I was wondering if you can explain to our audience what vicarious trauma is. And why is it so important for lawyers to acknowledge those emotions that you were talking about and that vicarious trauma that they're going through and maybe going through in the future? Yeah. So, I mean, vicarious trauma is very distinct from burnout. So, you know, we all know what burnout is, like you're exhausted, it's been like a tough month, or you had a really tough file, and it took months, and you just need, uh, you need time off, right? You need a vacation. And then you come back, and you're like, ready to go again. That is like, that's, that's burnout, right? So you get a break, you come back, you're good to go. Whereas vicarious trauma is really carrying the traumas or the um, harsh 
lived experiences of people that you're working with or exposed to um, and carrying that with you and having it adversely impact um, your well-being and the way you engage with your colleagues and your friends and your family and um, it can present in all kinds of ways it can present as nightmares sleep disturbances um, panic attacks anxiety depression loss of purpose loss of um, uh, productivity, like suddenly you're not producing at the same level you normally do, having a really hard time focusing, um, just feeling very detached from everyone and everything, or feeling angry all the time, like just always angry and not really even knowing why you're so angry, um, or just being super sad and thinking about just not coming to work or not showing up or not waking up the next day, right? It could be like such a range of things and it's not the same for everyone. Um, but I would invite people who are thinking about whether they're impacted by the traumas of those they work with to really think about what their triggers are. Like, do they have like what sets them off and whether that is um, a soft spot for them and what that soft spot is. Because if you have unhealed trauma, um, the traumas of others are, is definitely gonna, gonna almost like keep on poking at that bear, you know? If you um, are repeatedly exposed to people who are um, highly traumatized or highly distressed or highly, you know, amped up in, in these way, emotional ways, then that's also going to poke that bear. And if you're in an organization where no one even talks about mental health or vicarious trauma, then your risk goes up even more. And so um, you need to really, again, be honest with yourself about, you know, what your triggers are and, and be able to identify when maybe you're not doing so well. And when you are honest about being able to go, okay, I don't think I'm doing well. Um, know where to go for help like it doesn't even have like you don't necessarily have to go to like a therapist immediately but like talk to someone you could talk to a loved one you could talk to someone at the LAP whatever it is for you but um we you have to address it because if you don't that stuff just stockpiles somewhere in your body until all of a sudden it's built up and it runs you over and and that moment can be so many different things for so many different people it could be a suicide attempt it could be all of a sudden you find you're completely addicted to you know whatever it is alcohol or drugs or you've lost a bunch of money because you became a gambler just to try and put your work out of your mind or who knows or your partner is divorcing you and you're like what um so yeah and it goes back to being honest with yourself um, and being able to do the courageous work of looking within where most of us never want to look because God knows what we'll find. Yeah, no, it's definitely important to look in and just constantly check in, right? And I really agree with the point that you should always reach out to other people, whether it be talking to a loved one, um, they don't even have to be in-law. I think just, again, it goes back to the whole topic of being empathetic with one another, right? I think just having the willingness to listen 
goes a long way. And it's also an important aspect of being a lawyer because our job is to solve problems, right? But I think to solve problems doesn't just require communication. It also requires the, the ability to listen. Yes. And to that point, if I could just, you know, not to plug my podcast or anything, but I'm <laughs> going to plug my podcast. Um, there's one episode in particular about uh, creating a sustainable law practice where I had a conversation with Helgi Mackey. And in talking about creating a sustainable practice, she talked about the... Um, uh, she talked about debriefing and how debriefing should be incorporated into your workday. And debriefing is really important because it's so distinct from like distracting yourself, which I think is what we all do too often. Debriefing forces you to actually go to your colleague and say, this is what I worked on today. And this is the effect of this work and acknowledging it and then letting it go while all your colleague does who you're debriefing with is just be silent and listen to you unless of course they were in the experience with you then you know you can talk about what the impacts were together um, but I think it's such an important um, tool that we could use to take care of ourselves and each other because if firms acknowledge the value of debriefing as a mental health strategy, then it will become commonplace for a colleague to go over to another colleague to go, um, hey, I need to debrief something with you to have some time today. Mm -hmm. I think it's definitely a healthier alternative rather than turning to other substances, whether it be alcohol or drugs and, you know, all these issues that lawyers tend to face when they are under an incredible amount of stress. And yeah, no, I really liked what you said about debriefing. Um, it actually reminds me to the time where, uh, so I did my first year of law school out in Windsor, Ontario, and my first year criminal law course was taught by a Crown prosecutor. And yeah, she would talk about the importance of debriefing. And at that time, um, tr being trauma informed wasn't really much of a concept. Like I had never heard about it, frankly, until until I came across your podcast. But yeah, um, just the things that she was talking about was something along the lines of being trauma informed and debriefing because for example she would talk about how sometimes she would have to prosecute cases where the evidence is just incredibly hard to get through um she talked about how one time she had to deal with a child pornography case and for her as prosecutor she was required to go through the evidence not just once but countless times right you have to keep rehearsing and this does inflict a lot of trauma not just not just on the people who are involved in the case but also herself too as a crown prosecutor just being able just not being able sorry but like just being required to be repeatedly exposed to this type of stuff that a regular human like we're not we're not meant to process this and never mind just once just even multiple multiple occasions and it is a lot so I definitely do think it's important to make debriefing more of an uh to normalize debrief debriefing more um in our practice yeah and if i can just add to your point um about this prosecutor and her exposure to child pornography which is really unfortunately commonplace if you are in criminal law and or sitting as a judge in criminal court and um to that point so two things i want to say one is if we can uh, pick up, you know, this, this resource and really start to think outside of the box and become really innovative, we can find ways to begin to engage protection um, mechanisms so that people who don't need to be disclosed, like uh, exposed to this information aren't necessarily being uh, exposed to it or having it disclosed to them. So think, 
think for a moment about who we are positioned, particularly as lawyers and judges and all that authority and power that that gives us, right? But there are other people who show up within our organizations and within courtrooms who don't have the same kind of power, authority, um, or a voice. So I'm thinking about court staff. I'm thinking about admin support, right? I don't think when they showed up to to get the, like take these jobs or do this work uh, that they were signing a waiver saying, oh, absolutely. I also agree to being exposed to having to make, you know, 10 copies of, you know, uh, images depicting child pornography. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need to think about what our obligations are to the people we work with who have less of a voice, we have an obligation to protect them. And when one person that I continue to, you know, highlight, and I've done so on my podcast is Justice Patrice Band out in the Ontario's um, Superior Court. Mm-hmm. Um, he has commented twice in two different child pornography sentencing decisions that vicarious trauma is a real thing, particularly in child child uh, pornography and that he implores us to find a new way forward and to write about vicarious trauma in the courtroom and even uh, go further than that and look at law reform to change the rules of evidence so that we don't have to continue to work as we have and expose people unwillingly without warning to content and sounds and images that will not only um, disturb them, but potentially create long-term mental um, impacts for them. And so, yeah, we have an obligation for sure to ourselves, to each other, but also to those who support our work that maybe don't have a voice. And so I think it's really important that we also think about those people when we think about trauma-informed practice. Definitely. And that actually segues into like our next question. Um, the next question that we had for you was how, how do you compartmentalize like work-related matters that are traumatic and in your own personal life? And how are you able to separate yourself from your client while still managing to be an effective advocate for them? What I am an advocate of is taking five intentional minutes between meetings You don't need more than that, but you should take more than that. But at a very minimum, take five intentional minutes between uh, putting down one file folder and opening up the next and moving on to the next thing or before you shift your mind to whatever else is in your calendar. But take five intentional minutes to go, okay, hold on a second. Let me just respect and give a second to what I just heard to what I just saw, Um, whether it's a client who is talking um, in a very distressed way about a divorce issue or a custody issue, or uh, brought all of their anxieties to your door because they're potentially facing a jail sentence for some crime, or um, they have a really big deal on the line and they are really freaked out about it. Like it could be a range of things. It could be immigration refugee. Like are they actually going to uh, be sent back to their country and all the fear that comes right? Like our clients bring so much uh, to our doorsteps, whether it's fear, anxiety, um, terror, grief, anger, sadness, whatever it is. And so whenever we are caught like exposed to those really strong emotions, we have to take five intentional minutes to go, okay, you know, how did I feel about that? Like, let me just check in with myself. Like, did I, 
you know, maybe subconsciously take some of that in? Did it kick up something in me? Did it uh, bring me back to a moment where I maybe had a similar experience many years ago or recently? I mean, we could like, you know, motor vehicle accidents that also creates trauma, right? So there's so like, this has such a broad application to so many lawyers. This is not just for indigenous lawyers or for people in criminal or family law, but we need to, um, we need to just recognize that the people we work with can affect us. If you are human and you have emotion, and so, you know, you're going to be affected by the pain and suffering of other people. And that should not be um, a strike against any of us. And so by taking five intentional minutes to just check in with yourself and then remind yourself, A, you're okay and B, let it go. That it does not belong to you. Their pain is not yours to carry. You are not responsible for the suffering they've carried or experienced to this point. Your job is to show up and advocate for their interests. And you will do that to the best of your ability, but you don't need to carry their pain or be responsible for their recovery or their healing or their well-being. We are all responsible as adults for ourselves. And so you have to say it to yourself. I don't know why that is, but you do. And I really encourage people to, within the, even that five intentional minutes, create a bit of a ceremony or a ritual for yourself. So, you know, whether that is, um, you know, you run your hands under cold water, which is something that was taught to me to just visualize whatever was trying to attach to me, just washing away. Or uh, as soon as you put a file somewhere, then that's it. It's gone. It's done. It doesn't follow you home. Um, that is really important. And that is one aspect of those five intentional minutes is to acknowledge what you were feeling and then letting it go and telling yourself, their pain and suffering is not mine to carry and it will not go home with me. No, I really like what you said about that because in a way um, you are able to be trauma-informed without necessarily compartmentalizing. Um, so it is it is definitely important to take those five intentional minutes. And yeah, it was interesting that you brought up washing your hands under cold water for five minutes because I've never thought about that. But even just a routine as simple as that, right? Um, just something to kind of get your mind back into back into the zone of things and remind yourself that ultimately everyone is responsible for their own emotions. So I also echo with what you both said, um, taking five intentional minutes and washing your hands under cold water. I know myself, um, I would used to meditate uh, with the app Headspace um, every day for five minutes to reduce stress and to recenter myself and to let go of those pains. Um, I just never thought of it as a method before our conversation today that it, it could be something I can use to be trauma-informed. So this ties in with the next topic. Um, how might you adjust your approach in terms of potentially experiencing vicarious trauma as an Indigenous person yourself? And do you have any words of advice for our listeners who are BIPOC legal professionals? So, you know, I'm Indigenous. Uh, I can really only speak from my lived experience. I mean, I, I have awareness of some of the challenges facing other racialized lawyers, right? Like racism has become quite universal for all of us. And so if we're not white, we're kind of the other and we're having similar uh, lived experiences and challenges in terms of um, trying to get access to spaces that are predominantly white, like the judicial 
beneficiary um, or being acknowledged for more than just a diversity hire or more than just a cultural um, immersive experience on a panel that's like, uh, you know, hosted by some legal education organization, right? And so, like, I find so many of us carry almost this additional responsibility of uh, blazing a trail where people within our families or our cultures have not been before. And carrying these additional responsibilities can, um, you know, lend itself to isolation and feelings of frustration and um, or exclusion or alienation or whatever it may be. So I think, you know, you're all doing what, what you can do, like in terms of having like, you know, your own, um, like your own, like this podcast that is created by uh, people with similar lived experiences and similar, maybe similar cultures or similar languages. I think more of us need that. We need to see ourselves in spaces that have been predominantly white. And so as long as we continue to keep moving um, that needle and keep creating color in really white spaces, pulling support uh, and encouragement from our colleagues who share similar experiences, I think is a, a really important aspect of self-care because it's hard if you feel like you're going it alone or you're the only person within an office or a practice area that looks like you and that brings the cultural experience that you do. It's so easy to just feel um, very isolated. And so that's when you know it's really helpful when we can pull on people who might be having similar experiences elsewhere, to debrief, uh, to rant, to complain, um, and then to find solutions. Like, how, how can I bring more people in to where I am? Or let's talk about some of these systemic challenges that we're experiencing, because we're all experiencing very similar systemic challenges. And so, I mean, anytime any of, a, any of us people of color speak up, I think we're speaking up for so many people. So the important thing is keep speaking up. And when you feel like you can't speak anymore, then you go talk to your colleagues and you gain some strength from them and then you just keep on going, but we can't stop. And so I'm just so happy that you all have created this podcast because we need, we need to hear more of these voices, like diverse voices, voices from the other and, um, and that really challenge stereotypes and myths that have been created about who we are as people, like who we are as racialized or indigenous or Asian lawyers, right? Like um, by having, uh, put, putting our voices out there and our lived experiences, it's really gonna challenge um, those stereotypes that some people might wanna keep us in, you know, because it works for them to say, oh, these people are this, or these people are that. Nope. Everything you just mentioned, that's, I'm sure that is exactly the reason why Sandy and I decided to join FACL because this was an organization where we felt a sense of belonging um, in a profession that is typically very, very much white dominated. Um, FACL was the place that offered us mentorship. And Sandy and I, um, I know we were both first in our family to go to post-secondary. And so just being able to find this community where we have lawyers ahead of us who look like us that was very encouraging in itself. Um, for me personally, like I recently had uh, like an affinity group meeting at work and that was the first time where I actually got to see the other Asian faces 
across different offices at my firm. And, you know, for the longest time, I, I felt like I was definitely a minority. I, you know, I thought I would probably be one of the only people at my firm who were first in my family to go to post-secondary. But to my surprise, that day on that call, I felt like I belonged because for the first time, I had all these other people also chiming in and saying, I'm also first in my family to go to law school, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it is definitely really important to to band together. Yeah. And to, and to create a voice that is different from what you're used to hearing, but I, I think it's important, especially in 2020 with everything that's been happening around COVID and even Black Lives Matter, right? Just the the need for diversity, it, it cannot be underestimated. Absolutely. I agree 100%. And I, I really invite people who are listening to your new podcast and my podcast, you know, if they're from other racialized groups, they need to create their own podcast because our legal profession really needs to uh, embrace and uphold uh, true representation of, of what this profession is made of. It's made of not just white people anymore. Although I don't know if you listened to one of my recent episodes with Zara Suleiman, she talked about how being on one of the one floor of the, I think the second floor of the BC Supreme Court, the wall was just white with all the judges. Mm-hmm. And I just think that has to change. So the more we all step up, whether we're Indigenous or Asian or Black or whatever racialized group, we need to step up and we need to contribute our voices and create, make space, make space for ourselves within these like traditionally white spaces so that in time, hopefully in my lifetime, we start to see representation um, in this profession and on the bench that actually looks like our society that we live in. Yeah, and I, as far as I understand, the minister is putting in efforts to have different forums to seek consultations from different demographics. And I'm, I'm glad that they're doing this, but I, I do feel like more dialogue needs to, needs to be exchanged in regards to this topic. And I do, um, like you said, I do really hope that we see increasing diversity on the bench in the coming years. Mm-hmm. And I think the podcast is so important because it creates that space for us to have these dialogues, to have these difficult conversations because we are going through so much trauma in our communities in the BIPOC communities and we can come together and talk about these tough topics about the trauma we experience in the legal profession but also in our individual lives and although we're different different BIPOC communities there's still so many areas where we can overlap and have that conversation and make that space and take that space to talk. Mm -hmm. I definitely feel like you know we're fighting a different fight but it's also the same fight at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah yeah yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, that brings us to our next question. What trauma-informed approach would you take or alter from your normal approach when you are dealing with Asian and BIPOC clients? Well, I can say now that I've become this trauma-informed lawyer, which I hope all of us become, uh, I'm trauma-informed with everybody. Everybody is entitled to it. Everybody should receive it. That means victims, uh, clients, witnesses, perpetrators, respondents, accused, judges, colleagues. Um, This is how, this is a way of interacting with everyone, but particularly what I would love to um, just sort of comment on, I, I, this is my belief. I believe that if you are planning on working with people who are from a different demographic or cultural background as you, you have an obligation to know who you're talking to before you dare even sit down with them. 
So what do I mean by that? Let me give you an example. Cultural humility is something I talk about a lot. It's very distinct from cultural competence. So cultural competence really, it positions you as an expert in someone else's culture and lived experience. Um, it's kind of like, oh, let me take this course and get a certificate. And now, Sandy, I am an expert in, you know, your culture. Like, pat me on the back. I can work with your people, go into your communities. And I know, you know, I know I'm now the expert. And I just think that that is so condescending and it is so disrespectful uh, and offensive and so I like cultural humility because cultural humility positions us as the learners we acknowledge that we will always be learning that we could never become an expert in someone else's culture or lived experience. And it requires us to be humble when we enter a room, as opposed to be all puffed up with ego, like, oh, I know so much about you. Um, coming in actually with the view that um, there's a lot more that I need to learn. I don't know enough about you or your people. So let me just sit here and learn from you by asking open-ended questions, being courageous enough to enter into conversations that might challenge my biases or um, force me to have to acknowledge my biases or my beliefs and, and question my source of information. Um, I think it's so important to recognize that position of power, especially when you're starting a client meeting, to recognize that to open up with those brief, um, broad questions you were talking about, to really adjust that position of power, to really give power back to the clients so we can learn about the community and they can speak best about their lived experience. And Absolutely. So you need to know your client. And really, at the end of the day, if there's any takeaway that I want your listeners to really think about, it's this. How do you engage with your client in a way that leaves them feeling safe and empowered after they've walked away from you? Like, that is, that's what we've got to do. In my, my experience, even if a client's uh, legal argument has failed, or they didn't get the outcome that they were seeking. If I treated them in a way where they felt seen and heard and respected and validated, for many people, particularly those who are marginalized and maybe have not been used to that kind of treatment, that is enough. Yeah, I invite you all to think about how, how, how do you wanna leave your client? Like what kind of feeling do you wanna leave behind when you walk out of the room? Um, and I invite you to think about ways that you can uh, create safety and empowerment for your clients. Definitely. And I think it's applicable to personal relationships too. It's kind of like when a friend comes to you for a problem, you want to make sure that they're seen and heard and you acknowledge them, right? You don't want to dismiss them. Um, you want to maintain an open heart. And so I think it is really important to embrace that. And from, from the perspective of being a trauma-informed lawyer, just learning to have that cultural humility is so important. Yeah, definitely. Because the whoever we're dealing with, they are the expert in their own lived experience. Like we could both be Indigenous, but I maybe have not had the same experiences they have. We could both be queer, but I still haven't had the same experiences. So we should never um, suppose that, like, imagine that we know what their experiences are, because that's such a 
it's offensive, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, and also it will impact the way you ask questions. So if you sit down positioning yourself as an authority figure or as an expert, you're gonna dictate the way the conversation's gonna go. It's gonna be rigid and narrow, and it's really not going to um, invite uh, trust or connection um, or a feeling of uh, protection or safety. And people really, they need to feel that way as they work with you. Mm -hmm. And even just in the form of questioning too, a lot of the times that I catch myself, um, it would be easy to be like, did you not do something? But I think a better way to, to, um, to shape your form of questioning would be, what can you tell me about this thing? Instead of kind of having an accusatory undertone. And I think that's important because that adds to the whole aspect of learning how to be empathetic and um, not be dismissive. And I think it is, at the end of the day, it takes a lot of courage for a client to come up to you and open up to you about their problems because these are these are vulnerabilities, right? Um, there is, I feel like there is definitely some element of embarrassment and shame, especially when people go to court. Most people don't, like nobody really wants to go to court, right? It's time, it's time, it's time consuming, it's costly, um, you know, there's always feelings that are hurt in some way or another. And so it's never really a pleasant process for anyone. And I think it's important to come from being a, like a trauma-informed lawyer and just being empathetic, um, just knowing the need to make this as, not as seamless, but like to make it as less difficult as possible for the client. So I think it definitely uh, helps to maintain an open mind. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And asking open-ended questions will really like be your friend, like that kind of approach, as opposed to asking questions that invites a very specific, narrow response. And so, and when you want to challenge your clients, sometimes we have to, or challenge a witness, um, it doesn't have to be like whacking them with the trauma stick. You can find ways um, to ask questions to get the same type of result um, that does not do so much harm. Like one thing I do say about our our profession as it is now it was never designed to be trauma-informed right like when you're in an adversarial process harm will come and so I often say my job is to sort of soften the blows when they come but they will come and so I want to do no further harm but there will be harm and I I think it's important to be clear about that because uh, clients respond to honesty and transparency and it all goes towards trust. And sometimes if you've got to challenge them instead of saying, well, why didn't you do this? Um, it, yeah, that's definitely a judgmental statement because you're already, it suggests you've already made certain, you've, you've come to certain conclusions. Uh, but instead maybe saying to somebody, um, help me to understand like what was going on for you in that moment that led you to make this decision, maybe rather than this decision. Um, because the thing about trauma as well, when you learn about it and you learn about how it impacts the brain, is sometimes when people are going through a traumatic um, experience, their brain doesn't work together in a coordinated way. Um, they have a difficult time remembering or communicating certain details. Um, sometimes uh, traumatizing experience also kind of flips the switch in your brain and you go into almost autopilot. So you're not thinking rationally um, and sometimes you just freeze in a moment. And so um, when you ask questions like, well, why didn't you? Um, that really overlooks the effects of trauma on the brain because you think, oh, well, a rational person would have done this. A logical person would have 
done this, but if you're experiencing trauma in a moment, you're, you're neither of those things, logical or rational. Mm-hmm. And so we have to make space for that. And really, I would say this approach to the practice of law really requires us to learn so much that we didn't that we don't know and really uh, calls on us to be um, you know innovative lawyers who don't rely on these like what I call lazy lawyering techniques like it's easy to hit people with trauma sticks and to be judgmental and to be accusatory um, and to rip people apart and leave them feeling completely broken when they leave that's easy to do it's easy to take Hair down. It's a lot harder to be able to inquire um, and challenge somebody's credibility or reliability or version of events um, in a way that still um, respects who they are as human beings. And I invite all of us to find a better way forward. And I would also invite people to think about how you build healthy boundaries into your practice. Um, That really takes care of you. And how is that different from Uh, barriers that you might bring to your practice. And one barrier is ego. Our profession is notoriously puffed up with a lot of ego, either because people feel superior or because people feel insecure. But either way, ego doesn't serve us. And so how, um, how can we really like empower others and I think again like cult, like throwing cultural competence kicking cultural competency to the curb we also need to like kick ego to the curb and focus on safety empowerment and healthy boundaries um, for ourselves and for others. Yeah it's definitely possible to be an effective lawyer without being disrespectful or hurtful or harmful in any of those ways. Definitely some very important takeaways from today's conversation. Thank you, Myrna. Um, So that wraps up all of the questions that we had. Thank you very much for being our very first podcast episode guest speaker. Um, So to our listeners, I wanted to let you know that if you are interested in, you know, learning more and doing a workshop on how to be trauma informed, Myrna is actually going to be doing a workshop with our faculty general members. And that's going to be happening next month in November. So registration details will be going out shortly. So keep your eyes posted for our newsletter and our social media channels. And Myrna, it was really nice chatting with you today and we hope to see you again soon. Thank you so much, Myrna. Absolutely, and if I can plug one more thing. Um, I had, um, I and an organization I work with, Golden Eagle Rising Society, applied for a grant through the BC Law Foundation to create a toolkit. Um, It's called the Trauma-Informed Legal Practice Toolkit. It's for every, everyone. It's for law professors, law schools, like legal um, law societies, legal educators, advocates, people who support advocates, uh, and of course, like lawyers. And um, it is currently being printed. There's going to be like I'm having lots of copies made, and we're going to create a website um, which will be hopefully somewhat interactive, but also allow for a uh, PDF download option so people could download it and print it. Um, But yeah, we're getting 500 copies made. It's free, anyone who wants it. And I really invite law profs and lawyers and law students and legal educators to really uh, to, to request this document because it is an education 
educational resource that you will need and that will really serve you well. So it's the uh, trauma-informed legal practice toolkit. And if you follow me at all on any social media, whether it's LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, or um, Instagram, or you listen to my podcast, you're going to hear about it. And so um, I'll definitely send you um, at FACL a copy of it. Yeah, no, we would love to receive one of those copies. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Marina. I think our audience and even a general legal profession can learn so much from that. Um, thank you. Awesome. And thank you for inviting me today. Thank you so much. So we wanted to quickly summarize the five key takeaways from Myrna's talk. The first is to practice self-care. Second, be empathetic. Third, look in and ask yourself what triggers your trauma. Fourth, debrief with your peers. And finally, take five intentional minutes when you transition from file to file. Thank you for tuning into the Facul BC podcast. Visit our website at facultbc.ca and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at FacultBC. We hope you enjoyed our episode today and stay tuned for the next guest. If you have guest speaker suggestions, please email us at membership at facultbc.ca.